You are now listening to the Verify Phenoms podcast. In this show, we speak with individuals who have come from all walks of life and have overcome the mental limitations of imposter syndrome, perfectionism, and overthinking. Get your notebook ready and stay tuned to learn how you can win your mental battles and become a verifying phenom as well. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Verified Phenoms. And we're still in the season of talking to real people that have had real results. Today, we have with us Terry Tucker. He's a motivational speaker, author, inter- international podcast guest. He's a business administration degree from the Citadel and a master's degree from Boston University. In his professional career, Terry has been a marketing executive, hospital administrator, SWAT team hostage negotiator, high school basketball coach, business owner, and for the past 11 years, a cancer warrior, which has resulted in the amputation of his leg in 2018 and his foot in 20, uh, excuse me, his foot in 2018 and his leg in 2020. He is the author of the book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon Extraordinary Life. Terry. Happy Saturday morning. <laughs> How are you doing today? Thank you so much for being I, with us today. I am great, Phenom. Thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you this morning. Me too. I see the smile on your face. I got a smile on my face. I already can tell that it's going to be a lot of great energy between us today. Um, and I just can't wait to get into it, like you said. So I do have a couple of rapid fire questions, like I was telling you, uh, that I'm going to ask you. So I just want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind. All right. Okay. Sure. What's your favorite way to recharge? Uh, to be with my family. Uh, it's my wife and daughter and I. That's always been the case. I, I get my energy. I get my love. I get my support from them. So the best way for me to do that is just hang out with them. If you could be on a plane right now, where would you be going? Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, my gosh. That's where my girlfriend is right now. That's crazy. <laughs> Um, if you could have any dish for the rest of your life, what would it be? Any dish? Um, I would have to say, and, and this is going to get real specific, I would have to say it would be a large sausage pizza from Vito and Nick's Pizzeria at 84th and Pulaski in Chicago. That is super specific. Okay. <laughs> I didn't have this question written down, but that makes me ask something else. Do pineapples belong on pizza? Uh, I love Hawaiian pizza. So, yes, I'm going to say yes, they do. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. What inspires you? What inspires me? I would say love. Uh, Mm. It's it's the greatest thing we've got going. We don't do it enough. We don't look at each other and how we can help each other and love each other and support each other. I would say... I would say love. If you could go back in time and invent anything that's available right now, what would you invent? Oh, God, the Internet. (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one. Would you rather live in the ocean or in space? I think I would live in space. And what is one piece of advice that has always stuck with you? Uh, it, it was probably one of the best pieces of advice I ever got. And it, it had, to, when I was a SWAT negotiator, it was listen more than you talk. 
and and the importance of listening, not listening to respond, but listening to understand. And I think we don't mm-hmm. do enough of that. We, you know, okay, Phenom, say what you're going to say, because I want to get my two cents in versus, okay, Phenom, I hear what you're saying. I may agree with you. I may not agree with you, but help me to understand where you're coming from and why you feel that way. I think if we did a better job at that, we, we wouldn't have nearly the problems we have in society. Just we need to connect with each other. I love that. It's funny that you say that because I kind of said something like that right before we got started. I was telling you how I don't write any questions down other than the rapid fire questions because I actually want to be able to listen to my guests and actually hear what they have to say. And now I already be thinking about what am I going to ask them next, but actually be interested in what they're saying and have an authentic conversation from that. When you got that advice, did you feel as if the conversations you started having with people started to shift more? I think so. I, I mean, I, I was a negotiator, you know, a, a crisis mm. hostage negotiator at the time. So, I mean, we used to always say that if you're talking to me and your house is surrounded by the police, you're probably having the worst day of your life. And a lot of times we didn't know why we were there. What what got us to this point? What what, what caused mm. you to, to grab a gun and barricade yourself or barricade or whatever it ended up being? And so, you know, I rem- I'll never forget this. They gave us a formula when we first started. And the formula was 73855. And it had to do with how we communicate with each other. 7% are the words that we use. 38% are the it or is the tone of voice that we use with those words. And then 55% of how we communicate with each other is our body language and our facial expressions. So as negotiators, we were not with the person we were negotiating with. We could be blocks away on the phone or behind a locked door. So, you know, Mm. like I said, we may not know why we're there. So we had to just kind of pick a rabbit hole and go down it. And I didn't have the luxury of seeing someone, you know, when I said something, kind of roll their eyes like, oh, what an idiot. I can't believe he said that to me. And and so, you know, you're like, okay, I don't have that 55%. I'm relying on what they're saying and their tone of voice. So we had to figure things out, certainly by what they were saying but also by what they weren't saying and how they were saying. How long were you a a negotiator? Four and a half years. Four and a half years. So within the four and a half years, were you always on site, but technically off site? Like you were within the vicinity, within the location, but you were never face to face with anybody you were negotiating with? Never face to face because I'm going to say 100%. I can't think of a time where it wasn't. The person was barricaded and usually had a weapon. So mm-hmm. the best I could be would be behind a locked door and I would be surrounded by the tactical team and they would put up what was called ballistic blankets, which were these big things they put on the wall that looked like big blankets, but they would stop a bullet if a bullet came through the wall. So that was as close as I was going to get. Most of the time I was blocks away on the phone with somebody trying to work out the problem. I'm pretty sure, and let me know if I'm wrong here, that you developed such a strong skill of communication within the four four years. Because like you said, you were only given about 50% of what human communication is like because you weren't able to see their body language. When it comes to people that may be dealing with, let's just say, uh, anxiety 
um, when it comes to public speaking or giving presentations or anything of that nature, what were some of the skills that you picked up from a tone of voice uh, and the maybe the cadence of your words, the way you um, chose your words over the four years to help you be a better communicator? I think a couple of things, and, and you, you mentioned it just a minute ago. We, we were taught to use a curious voice, to, to be curious. To, and, and I think cops, police officers in general, are just curious people. They, you know, well, that doesn't make sense. Can you explain that more? Why did that happen? And things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so being curious was one incredibly important attribute that we had. Another thing, and I'm not real good at this, as you can probably tell, is to slow down in our talking, is to not talk so fast, to, to, to use deliberate words and things like that. Um, the other thing we did is we would use how and what questions. We would stay away from why questions because, it, you know, well, Phenom, why did you do that? Oh, wait a minute. That, why questions sound accusatory? They sound like mm-hmm. I, I'm accusing you of doing something. I can get to the same information. You know, why did you do that, Phenom? Hey, Phenom, what got us to this point? That's a lot softer than why did you do that? And that, so we would use how and what questions. And what how and what questions did is they would engage the other person to help us get them out. For example, if somebody said something, I might reply, well, how am I supposed to do that? All I've done is throw the ball back into their court. And, and, and say, well, how am I supposed to do that? Now I've got you thinking about how you can help me get you out safely. So those were, were some of the things we did. We used what was called tactical empathy, because if you think about it, in any relationship, whether it's you know husband, wife, parent, child, boss, subordinate, whatever it is, the overarching theme is trust. If I don't trust you, I'm not, we're, we're not going to have a good relationship. And so we had to develop trust. And one of the ways we did that was tactical empathy. Help me to understand where we're, where you're coming from. What got you to this point? Not necessarily agree. If I'm negotiating with somebody who just murdered three people, I'm not going to you know, say, oh, yeah, I understand why you did that. And that was perfectly fine. But help me to understand what got us to this point. And the last thing I'll say about this is we never lied to people. People would say to us, Hey, I'll, I'll put the gun down and I'll come out, but you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say, well, I'm sorry, when you come out, you are going to go to jail. But we would try then to deflect the conversation to something more positive and get them off the thought of realizing they were going to go to jail. And the reason we did that was, and, and this happened several times, whatever the problem was, the problem didn't go away. So a year from now or two years from now, you know, they have another fight with their mother and they barricade themselves in their room with a gun. We're right back negotiating with those people. And if they ever felt, hey, Terry, you lied to me before. Well, my credibility is gone and you're going to have to bring in another negotiator to negotiate with this person. So we did it just out of practicality because we didn't want to get to a point where anybody felt that we lied to them at any point. There was something that you say within that that I think is so huge. It's basically that's how a person can communicate. And you said it was what empathy? Tactical. Tactical empathy. empathy. I 
what you said was was a gem. And I think in, everybody listening to this right now, definitely think about that because you said it applies to all relationships. Doesn't yeah. matter. And I was just looking at one of the books on my shelf that I have yet to pick up. <laughs> but I need to read it. And I'm but the title of the book is Everybody Communicates, but very few connect. It's by John C. Smith, uh John C. Uh, Maxwell. And even though I haven't read the book, but what the title of the book and what you just said just connected so much because everybody talks, everybody communicates, even if we don't speak the same language, we communicate with our, our body language. And even let's just say in your case, sometimes you may not even see their body language. I may not speak the same language as you, but I can surely tell your tone of voice. <laughs> I can I can definitely tell a person's tone of voice. So being able to figure out that empathy and be able to, you know, have that connection with somebody is huge. Now, as somebody that was a SWAT negotiator all the way to a high school basketball coach, how is that? <laughs> those, are two, those are two different things that we're talking about here. So out of curiosity, how did we get there? How did we go? Was it the high school basketball coach first and then the uh, SWAT or vice versa? Like, what was it? It's vice versa. I, I was I was a negotiator uh, when when I got out of law enforcement. I started a school security consulting business, and I coached curl, girls high school basketball when we lived in Texas. So I kind of I, I sort of had two jobs, and and it was nice being your own boss, having a, a consulting company because during the basketball season I could kind of you know ramp that down and not spend as much time on it, and then in, in the off season I could ramp it up and and spend more time on it. And it was certainly unique for me because I grew up with with two brothers. I I'm six foot eight and I went to the Citadel on a basketball scholarship. I've got a brother who's six foot seven, who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame's baseball team. And then another brother that was six, is six foot six, who was an NCAA Division II All-American two years in a row and drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six five. So we used to joke that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, not a prayer's chance you were going to see anything that was going on, you know, in, in front of you. <laughs> but but that so, you know, here I, I've got no sisters. I went to an all boys Catholic high school in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And when I went to the Citadel, it was an it was an all male military college. It's co-ed now. So I, I'll never forget when my wife and I, you know, when my wife was pregnant, we went to the OBGYN. And she said, do you want to know the sex of the baby? And we were like, yeah, sure. And she said, well, you should buy pink. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. You need to keep it in there till it's done. I have no idea what to do with a girl whatsoever. But my daughter got my height and was six foot two and had an NBA three-point shooting range and actually went to the United States Air Force Academy to play basketball. So I coached her in high school, which was kind of a double-edged sword. It was great. But there were nights when we would lose where I would be like, you need to go home with your mother because if you don't, I'm going to say something that I'm going to regret. <laughs> Out of curiosity, even though that, you know, sports and athleticism was in your family, was there ever a point while you were coaching your daughter seeing that you're just like, you know what? I am out of my mind right now coaching these girls. Yes. I, and and I'll, I'll give you a story. I, we were we were playing a game. And game's going on right in front of me. I'm coaching. And I turn to one of the players on the bench and I say, you know, emotion for, you know, going for so-and-so. 
And she shakes her head in the affirmative. And, you know, I go back to watching the game. And out of the corner of my eye, I can see the scorer's table. And there's nobody there. And so I turn back to her and I'm like, get in the game for so-and-so. You know, again, another affirmative shaking of the head. I go back to watching the game, corner of my eye, nobody's at the scorer's table. So then I look at her and I'm like, get in the game. Now she's shaking me off like a major league baseball pitcher. You know, like, no, I don't like that sign. I don't like that sign at all. <laughs> so so I, I bring her to me. And, and Fina, mm-hmm. think about this. There's a basketball game going on right in front of us. She is yeah. standing two feet from the court. I have my hands on her shoulders. I'm like, what's the problem? Why don't you go? want to go in the game? All of a sudden, the tears start down the cheeks. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what's wrong? She said, coach, I don't want to go in the game. I said, why not? She said, well, I'm afraid that if I make a mistake, my friends in the stands are going to make fun of me. And I told her, mm-hmm. I said, number one, there are no uniform wearers on this team. You don't get to wear a uniform. You come to practice every day, make yourself better and your teammates better. What about your responsibility to your other teammates? And so I'm like, am I really having a psychology session right here on the sidelines of a basketball game? I had, I never, I mean, you couldn't wait as a guy, you know, when I was growing up, you know, yeah. to get in the game. It didn't matter how overmatched you were or terrible you were, you wanted in the game. She didn't want to go in the game. Eventually, I got her to go into the game. I told her, look, I know you make a mistake. You may make a mistake, but I just need you to do your best. Just go in there and do the best you can. And she did, and, and it worked out. But that, that was a story that I tell frequently that I'm like, I can't believe that we actually had a counseling session right in the middle of a basketball game. That's amazing. But that's so real. There are so many people that possess talents, and they work at something day in, day out, week after week, month after month, but they're afraid to showcase what they have because of what the world may say. What advice would you give to someone, you know, and it could be on a broader scale and from other experiences you've had, what experience, I mean, what advice would you give to somebody that may be experiencing that right now? I would say, just remember your life matters. Your life is important. I remember reading an article recently that said, I believe that the statistic was 83% of the people that were surveyed felt that they had a book inside them, whether it was a memoir Mm. or a fiction book. And yet less than 1% of those people will ever write that book. I don't care how insignificant or uneventful you think your life is. I promise you that your life has meaning to other people. And I'll give you an example. I I am still being treated for the tumors that I have in my lungs. And I remember when I was initially being treated, there were two nurses that took care of me. They were both nurses, but there was a younger one, probably about 25 years old, and she was learning how things were done on the unit. About eight months later, she was taking care of me by herself. And she she came in one, one day and she said, Terry, I... I want to tell you a story, but I'm a little uncomfortable telling it to you. And Fina, I didn't know how to respond to that. I was like, well, it sounds like I might enjoy hearing the story. I hope you decide you want to tell me. So she's in and out for the next couple hours and then finally comes in and says, all right, here's the story. She said, when I first met you, I was going to get out of nursing. I had had a good friend of mine die. I was in a really dark place. I talked to my mom and dad. I was going to quit nursing and I was going to go to work for Amazon. And then I met you. 
and I see what you go through during your trials, how you have these terrible reactions and shake and throw up and all that. And then I went back and I read your story about your amputations and everything you've been through. And she said, when I finished reading your story, I knew I was where I was supposed to be. Now, if she would have never told me that story, I would have had no idea that my life had had a positive impact on her. I guarantee everybody who's listening to us, I don't care who you are. There is somebody that you may know that you may not know that is watching you and observing you and watching how you handle adversity and difficulty in your life and would give almost everything they have just to walk five minutes in your shoes. So understand that, you know, regardless of how terrible you think your life is, there are other people that think you're an amazing human being. That's powerful. That's real. Uh, so many times, my mom always used to tell me when growing up that she always used to say, always make sure you're on your P's and Q's because you never know who's watching you. But the you never know who's watching you is so real. Like you said, it could be people that you know, people that you don't know. And they are just observing the way that you, like you said, deal with adversity, the way that you move, the way that you think, the way that you act, all things of that nature. From silently, it's almost like this. We could have 10 likes on a post on social media, but we have 100 impressions. And what that means for anybody that may not understand impressions is 10 people liked it, but 100 people saw it. And those 100 people may not engage with the post, but they are always there looking, seeing what you're doing. I know I had um, one friend of mine grew up with, don't necessarily see him interact with my uh, social media that much. But one day he just hit me out the blue. He was just like, I love every single thing that you're doing. You inspire me to just be better version of myself every single day. And on my end, I'm just like, I'm just trying to do the best that I can. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to wake up and just, just do something essentially, just trying to be great. And what we don't realize is like you said, so many people may desire to just walk five minutes in our shoes. And for a lot of us, we don't have to be, I would say 99% of us, we truly do not need to be at the level of success, quote unquote, that we think that we have to be at to inspire somebody else. You just have to essentially just be taking action, which is tough. So which leads me to my next question. Terry, after all the things that you've accomplished, how do you continuously make sure that you are taking action and you're not getting caught in your head with uh, just thoughts all the time. So I, I know you're young, you're much younger than I am, but most people who are listening to us probably know about Fred McFeely Rogers, otherwise known as Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Um, Mm -hmm. He was a, a public television individual who educated so many kids, especially me, when I, when I was growing up. 2003, Mr. Rogers dies. There was actually a movie a couple of years ago where Tom, Tom Hanks uh, played him in, uh, I don't remember the name of the movie. Might have been A Wonderful Day in the Neighborhood. So anyway, so 2003, Mr. Rogers dies. And his family is going through his effects. And they find his wallet. And inside his wallet is a scrap piece of paper on which Mr. Rogers has written four 
simple words. Life is for service. That's how I keep going. I realize that so many of us feel that we are born empty and that, you know, once we get out of school or, you know, whatever you end up doing and you get into life, that your job then is to fill yourself up. You know, I got to get a great education. I've got to get a good job, make a lot of money, get married, have great kids, all this stuff. I got to have a nice car, good house. And we fill ourselves up and we think somehow that's going to make us happy or fulfilled. And Phenom, what I found is it's just the opposite. We're not born empty. We're born full. We're born with everything we need to be successful already inside of us. We just need to find what we need, pull it out and use it to our benefit. So it's not about being born empty. What our life should be about is instead of filling ourselves up, is emptying ourselves out for the betterment, certainly of ourselves and of our family, but also of our our friends, our community, our country. And I think the people that spend all their time filling themselves up, there's always one more thing that they could get. I could get the latest iPhone or, or I could get another job or I could get a better car. There's always one more thing that they think if they get it will make them happy. And what I find, those people never become happy. They never become fulfilled. The people who become fulfilled are the people that act in service to other people. How do you feel as if you have found the service that's meant for you to provide to others as you continue to mature within your career and life overall? Because that's something that People within my age are always trying to figure out, like, what is this type of service I should be providing? What is my passion? What am I good at? How have you been able to figure out the service that you were aligned with? I, I think it has to do with understanding or, or getting in touch with our unique gifts and talents. Because if you asked me and said, you know, you should go be an accountant, I, I'm, I'm not good with numbers. That, that's, not, <laughs> that's not in my bailiwick. I'm much better with words. I'm much better writing or, or speaking. So that's more of my forte. So putting me in a in position where I can be successful, where you can be successful. We used to always tell our daughter growing up, play to your strengths, do the things that you're good at and, and, and get better at those things. We can always be a better talker or a better speaker or a better writer. I can always do that. So I would say the first thing is, is definitely play to your strengths. And then use those strengths in service of other people in, in mm-hmm. some way. You know, wh- whether you, you know, you write your book. I, this has not been easy for me. I, I, I started this motivational speaking business just as COVID hit. And, uh, you know, I, I, like so many other businesses, I had to figure out a different way to deliver my message or to retool or even to find a, a different group to, to talk with because nobody was doing anything in person or even virtually. Right. And, and somebody reached out to me and said, would you like to be a guest on my podcast? And I said, sure. What's a podcast? I had no idea what a podcast was. And they're like, well, we kind of have this conversation. And then we put it on social media. And I'm like, I'm a pretty private individual. I don't know if I want to do that. But I ended up doing it. And you know, it was hilarious. I, I had post-it notes all around the camera. And they would ask me questions. And I would like lean in and read the post-it. I was terrible. I was horrible at doing this. And I, I, I remember saying to my, I wrote a book and, and my publisher, he and I were talking and I said, you know, Scott, I listen to every podcast I've ever been on. 
because I want to have better stories. I want to have tighter stories. I want to see how many times I said, um, or huh, or whatever. I want to be a better guest. And he said, no, 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 Terry, it's not about being good. It's just about not sucking. And I said, well, thanks for the title of my next book. You know, just don't suck. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, no, that's not what it's about. I want to be good at what I, at what I do. So that's been, that's been a way for me to get my message out. Who can I help? Who can I make a difference with based on the skills, based on the gifts that I've been given and use that for the betterment of others? Mm. I can't remember who told me this. It relates to that. Just And they told me, because I've always tried to figure out what am I good at? I, I want to say every year or so, I like to just ask my friends, what do you feel as if my strengths are? Because sometimes we don't see what that is, but other people see our gifts before we see them. So I just continuously ask people, like, what do you think I'm good at? What do you think I'm good at? And that's how I figured out what I had a gift for and then just continue to work on it. Because like you said, we we may not be the best at it for what our standard may be, but we have a natural gift for it and we can continue to work on it. But having the the post-it notes... It's hilarious. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was, no, I was going to go say, you know, we, we talked a minute ago about sort of that imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I, I did a podcast about eight months ago with uh, an individual who was uh, an NFL player, played for the, the Titans and the Steelers. This guy's like six foot six, like 310 pounds. His brother is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, in Canton, Ohio. And we were talking afterwards. And he said, you know, Terry, when I first started my podcast, I didn't think anybody would care or listen to me. And I'm like, Marcus, how could you have said that? I mean, you you reached the pinnacle of professional athletics. You were an NFL player. I mean, you're huge. You're a huge human being. How could you think nobody would take you seriously? And he said, I just didn't think anybody would care what I had to say. So, I, I you know, you look at people that have reached the pinnacle of whatever they do. In, in this case, it was sports. And you you realize that, those people from time to time also feel like nobody cares what I have to say, that, that, that I'm, I'm an imposter, that nobody matters. And, and, and I, it just hit me when he said that. I'm like, I can't believe that you at the top of your game, so to speak, pardon the pun there, but, you know, that you felt that nobody would care, that nobody would listen. And he said, you know, it took me a while before I started to get traction on my podcast and and now I have all kinds of traction. He's getting speaking gigs for it and stuff like that. So don't feel anybody who's listening to us, you know, don't feel that, you know, it's it, it's not going to happen overnight. It, it, it just isn't. And you're going to make mistakes along the way. Understand that. And also realize there's no such thing as the perfect job. I mean, Phenom, you know, you'd probably tell me, you know, doing a podcast, there's all the work that nobody sees behind the scenes that goes into you putting that up was like, Oh man, it's a great podcast. Yeah. Well, they don't see the work that you did. And that's the ugliness. That's the grind. That's where people really got to get down in the trenches and do it. And you do that because you feel it's your purpose in life. That's true. That's very true. And I've, I've been kind of toying with this idea and let me know what you think as somebody that has been, you know, on different shows, but also you've had the moment to connect with hundreds and thousands of individuals, I would assume. The way that a person is essentially able to defeat their imposter syndrome 
is by simply taking action. Because the more that you essentially walk in that path, that purpose, whatever the career, let's just say in this moment, a podcaster, the more that you actually feel as if you are a podcaster or like a podcast guest or anything of that nature, you're a speaker. Because the more you do, you're like, you know what? 25 episodes in, who's going to sit here and tell me that I'm not a podcast host? I had 25 episodes. So I'm a firm believer of you have to essentially continuously take action. The more you take action, the more that you defeat that imposter syndrome. What would be your viewpoint on that? I would totally agree with you. As a matter of fact, when I wrote my book, I developed an entire chapter. And the title of the chapter is this. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. I know I wanted to start something and it was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, maybe I don't have enough information or maybe I'm not smart enough or what will people think about me if I fail? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities. That's not thinking with our minds. And whenever I speak to groups, especially younger people, I always tell them, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things that you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be those things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. What was something that was that you felt within your heart and soul that you wanted to do but scared you, but you still did anyway? Being a police officer. Uh, and and the sort of the backstory behind that was my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954 and was actually shot in the line of duty. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But my dad was an infant at the time when that happened. This was 1933. But he remembered the stories my grandmother used to tell of that knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us. Your husband's been shot. And so when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. <laughs> but that's what my dad wanted me to do. That's not what I felt my purpose in life was. And so when I graduated from the Citadel, my father was dying of cancer. And so I had a choice. I could have said, hey, dad, I know you're dying, but sorry, I'm going to go blaze my own trail. or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do. And so I did. My first two jobs were in business. I did that because my father wanted me to do that. And then I sort of joke. I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and I followed my own dreams. And I, I don't mean to sound conceited here, but one of the things that I'm most proud of in my life is that I never let my dream die. I never let my purpose die. I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer, which by most accounts is pretty old to be getting into that line of work. But it was a dream. It was a purpose in my life that I knew I was supposed to do. It just took me a lot longer than a lot of people to find their purpose in life. That's real. I love that. I love that because within my age group, let's just say between the 24 and like 28 age range. There's so many people that they feel as if they are running out of time to figure out their passion. Like they need to figure out their passion in their 20s. And I tell them one or two things. One, you have plenty of time. You have this, your entire time on earth. 
And honestly, whenever you figure it out, life just becomes a lot more clear and it moves a lot faster and everything that you've been through will be worth it, essentially. But two, also the way that you find your passion, if you don't know what it is, like at a young age, you just have to try stuff out because you don't know what you don't know. So you have to experience as much as life as possible in order for you to be able to figure out what you're passionate about. You're right. And, and I remember reading a book and I, I can't remember the title, but it was written by a man by the name of, of Jason Pfeiffer. And he's the mm-hmm. editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And I remember listening to a podcast that he did in addition to, to reading the book. And when he graduated in college, he, he went to work for a small town newspaper. But then he figured out, I want to be an editor. Someday I want to be an editor. That's what I feel my purpose is. He said, so I went to work for a company and I learned a certain type of editing. And he said, as soon as I learned that editing, I switched jobs and went to another company to learn a different type of editing. And once I learned that, I switched jobs again and learned a different type of editing. And I think that's that's a role model for us to look at because I think so many times we get into a job and we think, oh, I'm comfortable. You know, I'm making good money. It's easy work. I don't have to really grow or expand myself too much. So, so I'm going to do this. So we quit. We settle for where we are. And I, and I guess maybe I should say this. A lot of times we think our purpose in life has to be our job or our employment. And if it is, that's great. But it doesn't have to be. You know, your job could be over here. It's what you do to pay the bills. But your purpose in life is to is to paint or to be a podcast host or to be an activist or or whatever you feel in your heart it is. So don't feel that, okay, I'm I'm working on a job and it's it's not my purpose. That's okay. It doesn't have to be, but continue. Like you said, try new things. Just try stuff. You're gonna mess up, especially when you're young. Fail. Fail often when you're young. And the way you fail is you do things and you get outside your comfort zones. Almost how <laughs> how you started off with all the po- uh, the the notes around the screen for the podcast. So I gotta ask you, how many podcasts did it take you to get comfortable with yourself as being a guest? From like, you know what? I don't need these sticky notes anymore. It it, it took me a while. I, I I mean, even now, I'm I'm not comfortable. I mean, I'm comfortable, but I'm still not comfortable. I I talk too fast. I there's all kinds of things when I critique myself that I want to get better at. And I've probably been a guest on, I bet I'm closing in on 700 podcasts now around the world. So I, I would say at least, I would say at least 50, maybe 75 podcasts before I felt like I can just go do this. I don't need the the notes and things like that mm-hmm. because I felt I had good stories and and mm-hmm. we learn by stories. If, if you have a good story that you can tell somebody that they can relate to, they're going to remember that as opposed to just saying, well, here, do this. If you can here, say, here, do this, but here's a story that illustrates that, people will remember that. So I, I try to, to do my podcast with stories so people understand and remember what I have to say. Mm-hmm. So wrapping up here today, I'm going to put you on the spot. If you could share a story. <laughs> if you could share a story that has an underlying message to leave the audience with today, what would it be? 
Well, I've, I've got two, and I don't know which one to tell you. Um, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this one. So right. when I was growing up, I was a I was a big fan of westerns. You know, my mom and dad used to let me stay up late and watch Gunsmoke and Bonanza and Wild Wild West. And and, and your audience is probably like, "What the heck is he talking about? What are those shows? <laughs> those are old shows, very old shows." 1993, the movie Tombstone came out. You may have seen it. It was a huge blockbuster. Starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not made up characters just for the movie. Now, Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card show. And Wyatt Earp had been some form of a lawman almost his entire life. And somehow these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds come together and form a very close relationship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died at that sanitarium, and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money. He has no job. He has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc. And the two men pass the time that way. And it, almost this last scene in the movie, they're talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, when I was younger, I was in love with my cousin, but she joined a convent over the affair. But she's all that I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt kind of nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal. There's just life. Phenom, you and I both know probably people that are out there listening to us. They're like, well, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. Or when that occurs, I'll have a successful life. Or when this transpires, I'll have a significant life. What I'd like to leave your audience with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there. Find the reason you were put on the face of this earth. Use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do at the end of your life, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. That's a great story, too. So lastly, how can people find you? How can they support you? So I have a a blog called Motivational Check. Every day I put up a thought for the day. On Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message. I have recommendations for books to read, videos to watch. My social media links are there. All of that is at motivationalcheck.com. I love that. Any social medias? Yeah, I do. My social medias are on that site, too. I I have have Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. I I got it all. (laughs) Perfect, perfect, perfect. So check out the website. Get that daily motivation. Uh, Terry, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for uh, coming up here on this Saturday morning with us today. Y'all, this has been another episode of Verified Phenoms. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you gained some knowledge, gained some gems, felt some motivation from this episode, by all means, share this out to at least three people that you think that would love the messages that were spread today. And other than that, we will catch you all on the very next episode. See ya.